Welcome to the session today. We have Dr. Craig Solid, who is an expert on return on investment analysis, and I'll let him explain that more precisely. So welcome to our session today, Craig. Thanks very much for having me, John. Happy to be here. So what we would like to um, have just an informal discussion about return on investment. I work with healthcare organizations around the world and articulating the cost benefit of the intervention or of the data management system, whatever it is, that's very important. But what I find is um, the variety of expertise in doing that is all over the place. And when I read your book, which I'll have you uh, talk about specifically, it provided such a clear methodology for um, measuring outcomes and are stating what the return on investment is, but it was in such a stable way. I don't know if that's the best way to say it, but it provided consistency for understanding what the real cost benefit was for whatever um, intervention you're going to be providing. So um, why don't I just have you start with talking about the title of your book, uh, why you wrote this book, and then we'll get deeper into the conversation about why this is important with the um, people that I work with around the world and how this might help them. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so my background is actually in statistics and health economics. And I, as an independent consultant, I have worked with organizations who are trying to get funding for quality improvement or uh, deciding about an intervention at their facility, something like that. And as um, you know, the world has moved towards this value-based care, more and more of these organizations were asked or felt the need to, to look into the financial implications. So the book is really uh, a function of the experiences that I've had working with you know, non-analytic types, those who are on the front lines of care or who are administrators who don't you know, have a financial background or an economic background or an analytic background. And the goal was really to provide some um, really practical um, solutions or practical guidance as to what to do. So the name of it is Return on Investment for Healthcare Quality Improvement. It was released by Springer uh, last year, summer of 2020. Um, and it, thank you for saying what you said about it, because it was an attempt to try and sort of provide a cohesive step-by-step methodology for how to think about and sort of perform these types of analyses. So in my working with hospitals, one of the things that I find is they are suspicious, if you will, on the cost benefit of what you refer to as value in your book. Can you talk about uh, how value is an important aspect of um, the return on investment calculation. First, define what value is, and then just talk about uh, why that's important. Yeah, so so value gets thrown around a lot right now in healthcare, and I I don't really feel like there's a shared understanding of what we mean. So one of the very first things that I do as I is whenever I talk about ROIs, I try and take a step back and say, okay, let's let's talk about value uh, in general, sort of as a larger picture. 
Um, and to start, I in terms of defining it, it's a it's a subjective um, quantity. It's it's like quality in that sense. Like it means different things to different people in different situations. So I always say value to whom, because a certain intervention may have a value to uh, a patient. It might have a certain type of value to a provider and to a payer. And those might be different and you might define them differently and you might measure them different differently. And so, you know, ROI is really the financial perspective, the financial return from a single perspective. And it's one piece of value. But there's a lot of things that aren't, you know, financial or monetary, like patient experience, quality of life. Um, you know, from the facility standpoint, there might be aspects of their reputation or brand that would benefit from, you know, improved quality or things like that, that aren't necessarily monetizable. So value and ROI are linked, but value is sort of the larger concept of benefits associated with an intervention or um, even a device or a product that might be new that, that's providing uh, care in a different way or in a better way. And in your book, you talk about the increasing emphasis on value. And we'll talk more about the cost calculation, which is easier to do than calculating what cost is. As you've stated, value can be one thing to the staff member, like their job satisfaction. It can mean something to the organization of uh, valuing the patient experience and et cetera. But you do talk about how this is being emphasized more and more in um, regulatory bodies and that the percentage of hospitals and organizations that are including value in their return on investment calculation. Um, why is that in increasing in importance in our in our conversation and in our formal documentation on return on investment? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so obviously, as reimbursement policies have shifted towards what's called a value-based payment, which, you know, to get specific, is really about uh, quality measure performance. Uh, so we, you know, whether it's CMS or some other payer, they they sometimes link some of the reimbursement to how a facility or physician performs on certain quality measures. So the assumption that it's value-based assumes that that quality measure correctly captures some aspect of value and that performing better on that performance measure links to better value. And so we're going to link the reimbursement to it. The, the challenge is that, you know, value and quality are sort of, you know, hard to pin down, hard to define quantities that are subjective. And we're trying to link very tangible payments to them. So whenever we do that, we are going to struggle uh, you know, in the analytic wor world, we'll talk about the validity and reliability of some of these metrics to be able to accurately reflect what we want them to. Um, and in sort of the, the bigger picture, you know, when it comes to value, there's value in overall population health and there's value in high quality care at the point of care delivery. And those are related, but not necessarily the same. So. I think as an industry, we struggle a little bit to define value and really what we mean. So the ROI has become one method to try and um, you know, get a little better insight into what we mean by value for a particular situation. 
And in the book that I wrote, using predictive analytics to improve healthcare outcomes, that is being released this summer by Wiley Publishing, I talk about measuring some of these latent constructs, these things that people value. Uh, for example, if we want to make sure that our patients feel cared for or that their patient experience is high, um, in the book I talk about the importance of what you've just said is that it needs to be valid um, in your measurement so that your calculation is accurate. For example, if you're implementing Watson's theory of caring and you're teaching all your staff how to enact the 10 processes of caritas, which means caring, um, it's important that you have a measure that captures those processes of caring that have been taught to the staff. Because if you use just any random caring instrument that doesn't capture what the staff have been taught, then you're missing all that effort of that intervention that you are using to make sure that staff are demonstrating caring. So these are the kinds of things that you talk about that if you are going to be measuring what you say is valued, that you have to have an instrument that is valid. And this would be an example of a valid measure that captures what you are teaching to the staff. If, so first of all, tell me if that is correct. And the second, then the if that is correct, then talk to me a little bit about um, your experience in working with clients that are trying to find instruments that are valid to measure what they value. Yeah, that, that's correct. And, and I think sometimes clients, uh, whether it's hospitals or providers, I think sometimes they have a, have a sense as to what's a good measure or a valid or reliable, but they can't necessarily articulate why they why they think that and they can't do it in those analytic terms. So for example, within um, some programs by CMS, one of the main quality measures is uh, a measure of, of readmission, 30-day readmission. And hospitals will push back on that measure and say, I don't think that's an accurate reflection of quality at the point of care, because a lot can go into whether or not someone needs to be readmitted within 30 days. There's aspects of their behavior, there's, you know, social determinants of care, there's all sorts of things. And what they're really pushing back on is the validity of that measure. Does it actually, does it actually reflect quality as the measure is intended to? They also say, well, we're we're different. Our hospital is different than that rural hospital over there. So we shouldn't necessarily be compared with them. And in that case, then they're pushing back on the reliability because reliability is really how good is the measure at discriminating between um, entities that actually differ in quality. So they're able to identify that, but they aren't necessarily able to understand or articulate exactly why they feel good or, or not good about it. But when you have conversations about it with them, they get it and and they can usually, uh, together we can figure out what is a, a valid and reliable measure that they can use. What I'm fascinated about what you've just stated is that you have 
measured, you've identified readmissions for heart failure in less than 30 days, which is one of the outcomes that I've actually studied uh, extensively. And in the beginning of this study for reducing readmissions for heart failure, the client approached me and they basically said, we have no idea how to study this, to measure this, if you will. And this is why I am so um, enamored with your book, if you will, because it is so critical to have a method of measuring return on investment, both value and cost, so that you can get buy-in from the decision makers that this intervention is important and that you identify uh, from the decision makers what they value. Because if you're measuring what they value, you will pull them in with their interest. And if you can articulate the value and the cost reduction, you're more likely to get funding to continue your intervention. So this is really critical to think about when you even start your intervention to improve the outcome. So this particular um, study that's in the book, Using Predictive Analytics to Improve Healthcare Outcomes, we actually did reduce the readmissions from above benchmark to at benchmark. So that saved them $2 million annually in penalties because they were being penalized about $2 million a year for their size of hospital for the being over benchmark. So this was completely exciting to them, but the reason is, is what you have just stated, is we made sure that our measure was specified for their context. Mm -hmm. We didn't go into the literature and find an instrument that was quote unquote standardized for measuring readmissions. We talked about why their patients were being readmitted from their perspective, from their story. And then we, from that story, we then decided what was our measurement model because these were the things they said were causing readmissions and we found they were true. And so what was interesting is of all the different things that could cause readmissions like comorbidities or system failures or pharmacotherapy, the number one predictor was having a nurse call you after you were discharged to say, do you understand everything you're supposed to be doing? Did you get your discharge instructions? So those patients who had a phone call from the nurse after discharge, they tended not to come back. But the ones that reported they did not get a call, those were the ones that tended to come back. So it was a relatively easy fix, but it using the story to measure the predictors helped us hone in or focus in on the problem. And it brought us to, down to benchmark. Well, they were absolutely elated. But now the next step is to articulate that in a return on investment. Now, we've been talking a little bit about value, so that's been really good. And I want to talk a little bit about cost, how you articulate the cost. Or let's take let's let's talk about maybe talk about falls because I I did a careful calculation on fall 
the cost of false, and that's in this book too, that's chapter five of my book. But what we did is we looked very carefully at that hospital's cost for a fall, average fall. We looked at the system uh, uh, for their records. So we were drawing numbers, not from the literature, but we were drawing the numbers from that hospital. And it sounds like that would be really hard to get, but because there's so much public reporting in hospitals, you can go to Hospital Compare, you can go to the, the, um, the healthcare system websites. There's a lot of transparency so you can get actual data to do your cost calculations. So, and so I was, I was confident in when I stated we saved them $1.6 million by reducing falls per patient days from four falls per 1,000 patient days to 0.6 falls per patient day, uh, 0.6 falls per 1,000 patient days. I was confident that when I said we saved 1.6 million, that it really was 1.6 million. And I actually provided the formula and all the, it was a two page description. So the first thing I wanna ask you about is what is what are the barriers for people actually finding the cost for their uh, return on investment? Sure, um, so there's a couple ways that people can go. And and the first thing that I tell everybody is before you do anything, you need to define your scope and your perspective. So, so as we talked about, whatever the intervention is, there are benefits uh, and costs uh, that may be incurred by payers or by facilities or providers or patients. So, so because ROI is the financial return from a single perspective, you need to pick, well, what is that perspective? Um, so for falls, maybe it's a payer perspective, maybe it's the facility perspective because you know they have penalties associated with it. And so that'll influence what costs you're gonna look at. Now, really there's two, as you touched on, there's really two main sources of uh, information about costs. The first is what you described, if the facility or whoever's doing it has either pilot data or administrative data that they can pull from. And the benefit for that is that it accurately represents the kinds of costs that they will or have incurred. The only downside sometimes is if you're trying to generalize it to say a larger population or other geographic regions, it may or may not be as generalizable. Uh, the flip side of that is if you use published literature or say, you know, national reimbursement rates or something like that, it may be more generalizable to a larger population or, or, or to a, a, a larger scale, but it may or may not be as accurate for that particular facility because they have nuances that will affect the reimbursement rates or their costs and things like that. So whatever is chosen is a function of what's available uh, and also what their, what their goal is. Are they trying to say, get funding from a, nas a national payer um, or are they just trying to decide internally what makes the most sense for us to spend money on? Is it this initiative? Is it this MRI machine? Is it some other initiative? Uh, and, and those kinds of questions will determine where they would get those cost sources. And what would you say is the largest or the most frequent um, mistake people make in writing their ROI, the return on investment reports? I think 
Well, one of the main mistakes that people have in terms of conducting them is always doing them retrospectively. So they will complete the initiative and then they'll look back and say, okay, where was the value? Um, and often what happens is they'll figure out, whoops, we didn't measure what we needed to in order to identify where the where the benefit or the costs were. For example, um, in the falls example, in terms of benefits, for example, there are benefits for preventing all falls, but there are different magnitudes of benefits for preventing falls that result in injury that require medical attention. So sometimes they may not think about that and lump everything together and then say, well, how many of those falls result in an injury? Well, we didn't track that. Well, then how, it makes it that much harder to track what's the value associated with, with the reduction. Costs are the same way it can be hard to know when those costs begin. There can be ramp up costs, there can be materials costs, there can be training costs, and then there can be ongoing costs. And if that's not thought about up front, it may be hard to know retrospectively, well, how far back should we go? We, you know, we started talking about this a year ago. Should we include costs from that? So really it's about, the, the biggest mistake is really not thinking about it at the same time that they're planning the intervention for quality. Uh, and so I'm a big proponent of, of thinking about the value and the costs and the benefits at the same time that you're thinking about how are we going to measure quality and rates and events and things like that. No, that's a great that's a great point uh, about the degree of um, cost within each one. And within our calculation in chapter five, we talked about what we did is we calculated the number of falls, and then we looked at the average cost for fall with injury, and then we looked at the cost for fall with without injury, and then we looked at what was their pattern of fall with injury. And so then we included that percentage of fall with in injury in our cost calculation. So do you would you suggest then that as they are planning their intervention, if they truly want to have a report at the end that is convincing for the uh, cost and value benefit of this, that they lay out what their formula would be, so to speak, or what the things that they should measure or consider in their report before they start their um, intervention? I, I think that would be helpful. I think knowing, as you stated before, knowing exactly why you're why you're doing this. For example, um, perhaps during the intervention, not only the number of falls decreases, but but the type of and the number of injuries decreases, but the type of injury. So maybe there was a larger reduction in hip fracture versus other types of fracture that you weren't expecting. And if you don't track that, then you wouldn't know. So one of the motivations for doing this at all is to know how to do it better the next time, uh, to understand what are the drivers of costs and benefits. Mm -hmm. um, what, what did we learn from this? What are maybe the linchpins? Oh, we have to make sure that we reduce at least you know, two falls a month, or this isn't going to be uh, beneficial. And really, the gains are earned in this specific population who has, maybe they have medications that increase their likelihood of falls, or some condition like Parkinson's or something like that. And so that's sort of the biggest bang for your buck group. 
How does that group compare to you know, all patients? So really what they track and what they want to measure and how they want to measure it is going to be a function of what are we going to use this for going forward? And it really, you know, thinking about it up front really allows for these kinds of conversations to say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we knew this aspect of it? And then they know to track that so that going forward, uh, th that'll give them the information that they want. So there's, a, as you know, there's a million things that they could measure and track and on the back end, they could cut it and slice it any number of ways, but it really is going to be a function of, of what are they trying to do? Who are they trying to communicate it to? Is it the key stakeholders at the facility? Is it about easing the mind of family members who have you know, relatives or, or loved ones at this facility? Is it for a payer to say, hey, we figured out the, the best way to get the biggest ROI. It's with these patients and, and doing this particular intervention at this intensity. Uh, and so all of those questions will really sort of um, uh, uh, impact how they decide to set it up. And I, my, in my experience, it really is unique to the situation. There isn't one, one way to do it that's, that's universal. Oh, that's really interesting. You know, you talk about once you conducted your return on investment analysis and you have been able to calculate the value and cost that you're suggesting that they revisit their process and results. And I, I talk about this in my book with outcomes is that once you've measured an outcome, you want to revisit your model and see if there were any variables you were missing. So you re-specify your model so it is more precise and articulate in the follow-up. And you're suggesting that same thing, that they would revisit the things they measured and what they learned so that they might re-specify the way they measure the return on investment. Definitely. So, so, and this gets into one of the things that I think is uh, typically lacking in ROI analyses is they'll do a base case, but there's no sensitivity analysis. So prospectively, obviously it makes sense to do a sensitivity analysis to say, what happens if we recruit more or fewer than we thought? What if the intervention was more or less effective than we thought? What if we reduce falls more or less? How does that affect the ROI? Is it still positive? You know, what's the variability there? Retrospectively, doing a sensitivity analysis can be helpful um, to, to, to explore some of the things that we were talking about. So, hey, the rate of hip fractures was really different than we thought. I wonder what effect that had. What if the hip fracture rate had been this or had remained this? Would we still have seen the same ROI? Again, the motivations might be varied, but it might be, you know, to, to be able to say, hey, even if you don't reduce hip fractures by this, you're still going to get a good ROI. Or maybe it's to learn where the particular drivers are. So playing with some of that retrospectively just provides more insight in terms of what was effective, why it was effective, for whom was it effective, and going forward, what can we learn about maybe applying this to different settings or populations or uh, circumstances. Oh, that's very interesting. Now, you're talking about um, respecification and examining the different with different numbers, that kind of thing. Now, in my book, I talk about how we move from retrospective management of outcomes to prospective, where we can actually do risk of, uh, not, excuse me, where we can actually do projection of what the outcome might end up being. <clears throat> 
would it be possible then with that same thought in mathematics where you utilize the trajectory of your costs and your um, benefit to actually predict or forecast what your cost savings are based on um, historical data? Yes, and you can do that a number of ways. So you can do that in a very analytic way, as you as you stated, you know, using potentially using models and time series and things like that. You know, in my book, I talk about that, but because it's targeted for a non-analytic group, I basically suggest, you know, try different things. What happens if you uh, uh, accrue costs and benefits at the same rate going forward? What happens if they go up? What happens if they go down? You know, and sort of a, from a practical standpoint, you know, if, if your intervention involves training, maybe the effectiveness of the training, you know, wears off over time. And so you'll start to accrue benefits, you know, less rapidly. Um, things like that. It certainly, you know, in the sensitivity analysis, I, I talk about not just ex uh, varying the different assumptions or inputs, but vary the time frame, vary the rate of uh, return and see what see what you get. And and related to that too is it's not just about the ROI calculation. You know, there are other calculations that can be done. Uh, I like the payback period, which is basically, hey, we haven't hit a positive ROI yet because we had a lot of costs up front in terms of training and implementation. But but this is a sustainable intervention, and we expect that we will eventually, you know, accrue enough benefits to to make up for those costs, and that'll happen in X number of months, things like that. So those calculations too are going to be affected by how quickly you anticipate that you will continue to. Uh, have costs and benefits and playing with that really provides a, a better picture of the overall uh, effectiveness and return that, that an intervention has. Oh, that's I'm I'm glad we're talking about this and identifying uh, why some of this information isn't in the book. Maybe that's going to be for book two for the advanced uh, ROI. But I think it's important for our listeners to understand that there is the potential for you to do some of this machine. It's really machine learning. If you automate this, this is really machine learning. You would try this scenario or that scenario. So then you can eventually understand where your greatest return on investment is and when it will occur. So this is really, this gets me excited because I love mathematics as you do, Craig. Um, so this is fascinating to me. And this is the kind of work that I do mathematically but with outcomes, and then you do it with finance. So um, I think uh, both together, this could be really, really powerful. Now, tell me about, um, is there a certain point, cost point, or investment point that organizations decide, I think I need to do a re ROI? Because in your book, you talk about, you know, there are some things that don't cost a lot, but have a high benefit. And then there are some things that cost a lot, but don't have much benefit. So talk about when do people decide that an ROI is important and when has it uh, really gone wrong? You really should have done an ROI in this scenario. So talk about when people decide to do an ROI and when they really should do an ROI. Sure, great question. Um, these days, it seems like most often people do them when they are asked to to do them by their funder or by a federal agency, and then they say, "How do we do that?" Um, and often that agency says, "Well, 
we don't really have any uh, direction for you. We just want a number at the end of it. So, which is, again, is part of the motivation for why I wrote this book, because I feel like on both sides, there's not a lot of clarity. I think, you know, one of the things, what you're getting at is the fact that ROI is a relative measure. It's, it's benefit per dollar spent. And that can hide some of the magnitude of benefit. So, for example, um, you know, if you do a ROI on, uh, say, Fluvac, um, you know, Fluvacs are not very expensive and they potentially provide a huge benefit. Sometimes someone would look at that and say, well, I know that the financial return on that is going to be so high because it's so inexpensive. I don't need, I don't need to do it. Um, but there are other times when we might uh, be confused by an intervention and we just compare the benefits. We might say, well, this one has more benefits and, and so we're for sure going to go with that. But maybe the ROI is a lot smaller than one that has maybe more moderate benefits, but also has more moderate costs. So I think th the optimal time to do ROI really is any time that you need to make a decision between alternatives or when you need to convince somebody of kind of the business case. Uh, you know, a lot of times we think about making the clinical case and that that's enough, but we all know that somebody has to pay for it. So it's not typically enough to just make the clinical case for some sort of intervention or solution. We need to demonstrate it's financially feasible, viable uh, enough that we can that we can uh, proceed. And, you know, this leads into a common question I get, which is, well, what's a good ROI? What should I shoot for? And the answer really is that it depends. Uh, you can imagine that there are situations where simply breaking even would be great because there's all sorts of non-monetary benefits that would be gained and you basically paid for it. There may even be situations one could imagine where you have a slightly negative ROI and you just sort of frame it as such, well, we invested you know, X amount of dollars per patient that we helped and it's worth it to us because we get these other benefits. So. It really is sort of a case-by-case -case situation, but even if someone doesn't do ROI, I, I usually encourage them to at least think about value in the larger sense because, because it is linked to quality and the two uh, do need to be thought about together. So I have, I have one more question that I am wanting to um, fit into this conversation. And it was, I think, one of the most powerful, well, there were many powerful parts of your book, uh, but one of the things I thought was so um, poignant was your calculation of percent where you report this was your percent of um, benefit. It was in a percentage. And in that section, you talk about sometimes people report how much it cost. Sometimes they report how much they saved. Sometimes they compare different interventions. So as far as how the um, return on investment is articulated, it's sort of all over the place. But you provide a formula that consistently gives you a percentage of what your return on investment was. And so because it's a formula, it is it's almost like a standard way to pre to report an ROI. So I thought that was really, um, helpful. Can you just talk about that that pitfall of reporting an ROI and really how they should 
do that, not necessarily going through the formula, but just talk a little bit about that pitfall of uh, we don't have a standard way of reporting the percent of our ROI. Yeah, that's again, I see it. Com it's common. Different groups will report it different ways. They say, well, we want an ROI of 10 to 1 or we want um, a benefit per dollar spent and they'll refer to everything as uh, ROI, but they're actually different metrics. So as you know, when it comes to uh, math and analytics, you need to have a standard way of measuring something and reporting it so that you can compare it across different um, interventions or across different entities. So I define ROI the way that it is most commonly defined everywhere in the world, including in say, you know, banking. If you were to walk into a bank and say, what's the return on if I, uh, do a particular investment, they're going to report to you, well, it has a 10% return or a 5% return. And that's standard. And you know what that means. It means that if I invest $100 today, a year from now, I'll have $105, right, at a 5% return. They don't look at you and say, oh, well, it's a it's a 1.05 to 1 return. And, you know, anyone would look at that and say, well, what does that actually mean? So I think it's important to have that standard in part so that it's easily communicated and also so that it's easily interpreted. So there are many places that will report an ROI that's basically a ratio. They take the benefits and they divide it by the costs and they say this is a benefit per, per dollar spent and then they'll call it ROI. The problem with that is as a, as a ratio, when benefits and costs are the same, that ratio is one. If it's less than one, then it's technically a negative ROI. And that can be confusing because you don't necessarily have a negative number for the metric, but you have a negative ROI. So so, so in the book, I present a few metrics because there isn't just one that's universal. Uh, there's ROI, there's benefit to cost ratio, there's payback period, there's savings per, per patient or whatever. Each has merit, but you need to be clear about how you define it uh, for your intervention and, and how you're going to calculate it. And I try and provide some standards because I, I do think that as a, as a minimum, as an industry, if we're going to talk about this, we need to have a shared vernacular, a shared definition, a shared way of talking about these things uh, so that we all are speaking the same language. Well, that is so fascinating, Craig. And I just want to say thank you so much for the time today where you have shared in your expertise on writing a return on investment report that is consistent. And it any really anyone can do it as long as you follow specific steps and include what's important. So could you tell again uh, the name of your book and how people might find it who are listening to this uh, session? Happy to. It's it's called Return on Investment for Healthcare Quality Improvement. You can find it on Amazon. Just search for it or uh, Springer. Uh, you can also order it directly from there. I also have links on my website, which is www.solidresearchgroup.com. Great. That's wonderful. And the name of the book that I had referenced, again, is Using Predictive Analytics to Improve Healthcare Outcomes. That also can be found on any bookseller such as Amazon, or you can go directly to Wiley and purchase it there as well. And both of our books are mathematically driven, 
but it is written in such a way to be useful to those who are in operations and need to know how to either write a return on investment or to manage their outcomes um, in a systematic and specified way for their context. So thank you again, Craig, for this time. This was very interesting and enjoyable. Thanks for having me, John. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. So thank you to everyone that has joined us today in this session. We trust that you found it engaging and useful. And I encourage you to look up either of these books that will help you if you need to do a return on investment or manage your outcomes. So thank you.